Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome everybody to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco and our listening audience nationwide. The club can be found on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. My name is Alison Gopnik, and I'm a developmental psychologist and professor at the University of California at Berkeley and also a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And I'm very happy to be your moderator for this program on a topic that's near and dear to me, both professionally and autobiographically, successful aging. And especially glad to be here with my old, very old friend in both senses, um, Dan Levitin, who is the author of the new book, Successful Aging. And as many of you know, uh, Dan is the best-selling author of several books, including This Is Your Brain on Music, and apparently now another bestseller, because the book is on the bestseller list. Um, Dan started out as both a neuroscientist and actually a professional musician, but now he's turned his attention to how our brains develop over our lifespans and how we can think differently about the last decades of our life. Daniel, welcome to the Commonwealth Club, and let's talk about your new book. Thank you. Well, Allison, this is just uh, such a, a treat for me because I, I was a student when we first met 30 That's years right. ago. And um, I just uh, have devoured uh, all of your articles, uh, peer-reviewed articles in particular, and your books, and the opportunity to talk to you about this topic. I mean, of, uh, you're not aging. You look the same as you did 30 years ago, uh, but whatever you're doing, it's successful. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning from you and uh, sharing. Yeah, my, my, my one aperçu about aging is that Everything about it is great about getting older, except waking up and finding you're in the body of a cockroach. That's the only, the only down, the only downside. Yeah, you know, my mom uh, says that. She, <laughs> almost. I mean, she's 85, and she says she looks in the mirror and she says, "Who is that old lady? I feel like I'm 20 <laughs> inside." Well, we all have that person inside of us. Yeah. Um, but I guess that really raises the first sort of question, which is. You and I aren't that old, but even so, from an evolutionary perspective, why are we here, right? I mean, if we were chimps, then we would have been dead for 15 years. And If we uh, were born 500 years ago. Well, we well, I'm not sure that's true, though. I mean, even 500 years ago, people, some people at least, were living until they were 70. Absolutely. Um, and that's a big difference between us and our closest primate relatives. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Why do we have this extra even even in hunter gatherer cultures we have this like this extra 20 years tacked on to the end um and of course it's particularly vivid uh for women because we're the only species except for orcas who have a period after menopause so why is that why are why are we here well um i'm persuaded by some of the things you've written about this that part of it is the grandparent syndrome mm -hmm. uh i mean it's it's really, to my understanding as an outsider, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, of course, but uh, the, I'm just a simple country neuroscientist. <laughs> but <laughs> for the love of God, Jim. <laughs> um, I, uh, it, I mean, I, I see it as part and parcel of the idea of why do we have gay people? 
Uh, well, I mean, one of the prevailing theories is that gay people help contribute to the raising of the family, and so in that way are indirectly helping to uh, promote the genes uh, that their siblings carry and other family members. And uh, grandparents are helping to promote the genes. It's somewhat diluted by the time you get to a grandchild. But they are serving an important function. They're um, certainly... 50,000 or so years that humans have been on the planet, we didn't have written language for most of that time. And so you had some sort of family and institutional memory with grandparents uh, and wisdom. We know that as brains get older, one of the things that happens is um, older adults are better at certain kinds of problem solving and at, at wisdom, which is a form of problem solving. So what are your thoughts on the grandparent syndrome? Yeah, well, I mean, aside from the fact that my one piece of practical advice as a developmental psychologist to everyone is skip the children, go straight to the grandchildren. Um, Have I think you figured out how to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's actually a lot of evidence and increasing evidence that um, that it really was having those those grandparents, the grandmothers and grandfathers, who just gave that extra support to children. And as you as you mentioned, um, we're one of the few cultural species, and great older people seem to serve this function of passing on the wisdom, cultural um, transmission, cult, cultural yeah. transmission, passing on the wisdom of what's happened before. And and as you were saying before before we started, whales turn out to be really interesting from that perspective. Do you want to say more about how do whales fit into this picture, or actually orcas? I think you should say more about it. This is your work, really. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, one of the things that we know is orcas are the only other species that we know of that has postmenopausal grandmothers. And just in the past year or two, there's been all these fabulous studies that have come out that have shown that the grandmothers are actually leading the pods of whales to foraging, uh, uh, to foraging resources that they might have found out about a long time ago. Um, do you think there's something about human brains as they get older that might be relevant to this idea of passing on cultural giving wisdom? Is there something you can see in the brain that seems to be designed to help us do that? Well, I guess we could back up a minute and ask what it is we mean by wisdom. Mm -hmm. what, what is wisdom? Uh, and uh, I do devote some of the book to trying to figure that out. And uh, there's a there are cognitive scientists who study wisdom and try to define it. And I, I think just uh, as a simple working uh, definition... Wisdom is the ability to uh, see patterns in behaviors or events that might elude other people, see commonalities among different events, disparate events, and be able to predict outcomes uh, of different courses of action better than others. And I think that the kind of wisdom that we value as a society necessarily involves empathy and compassion and solving interpersonal problems. Now, for reasons we don't understand, there are neurostructural and neurochemical reasons that cause older adults to become more compassionate, to mm. experience more gratitude. Uh, there's some hypotheses about why this might be, but we don't really know. And then, of course, um, pattern matching. You know, when I talk about extracting commonalities across different experiences... 
that's pattern matching. It's pulling patterns out of things. And pattern matching gets better the more time you spend doing it, the more experiences you've had. Uh, the more able you are to say, oh, this is just like that. I mean, the, in our own uh, recent uh, history, there's a kind of a divide of, among the generations of people who have lived through an impeachment hmm. and people who haven't. And it means something very different to the two people, right? Uh, and, uh, well, actually, uh, two impeachments or near impeachments if you count Nixon, right? Right, right. So uh, didn't actually go to impeachment, but... You know, he resigned under the threat of it. And, you know, youngsters, the, the millennials who were uh, experiencing this for the f- first time, the ones I talked to are kind of freaking out. You know, the yeah. country's falling apart. Well, it may be, but older adults say, well, you know, it didn't fall under, right. apart under the other two. Um, so the gratitude and the compassion... Uh, certainly help with the wisdom, but the pattern matching as a cognitive neuroscientist right. what interests me. Mm-hmm. And um, if you'll indulge me, I have a kind of personal story yeah. about, that, that has a San Francisco focus. My grandfather was an immigrant and came here in 1901, uh, and um, his whole family were tradespeople. Nobody had been to college, of course, but he decided as the seventh of eight children, he wanted to go to college. And he worked a full-time job and put himself through UC Berkeley. Hmm. And he got his bachelor's degree when he was 21. And he then decided he wanted to go to medical school, which was part of the UC Berkeley campus. He worked two jobs to put himself through medical school. And he got his degree, one of the first ones awarded in this country, in this newfangled field called radiology. Hmm. And... um, he couldn't get a job at a regular hospital because the regular hospitals wouldn't hire Jewish doctors. Right. So he got a job at Mount Zion Hospital, which is now incorporated into UCSF up on Divisadero. Uh, he worked there his whole career. In, uh, they asked him to found the Department of Radiology there and to chair it. Uh, my father was born there. I was born there. I mean, this is a, a hospital with a deep family history. And he also died in that hospital. Because of ageism, effectively, when he was 62, the very department that he had built and the young people he had hired decided that at 62 he was irrelevant and in the way and of no use to them anymore. There were no complaints about him. He was publishing in medical journals, peer-reviewed radiology journals. He was seeing a full patient load. But 62 just seemed too old. And the irony is that radiology has nothing if it's not pattern matching. Right, right. It's looking at little shadows on pieces of film and trying to figure out, is this shadow a tumor or not? And if it's a tumor, is it cancerous or not? And if you've done this thousands of times and then seen the clinical outcomes, had the patients come back and seen the results, your pattern matching peaks at maybe 80, not 62. Yeah. Uh, and the... Um, the tragedy is that after being pushed out, he sunk into a depression. Uh, and we know that depression uh, depletes your immune system. And he died at that hospital of an infection, basically, that he normally would have been able to fight off. Hmm. Yeah. So that raises another kind of question, which I've thought about, and we probably have all thought about recently, which is, is it is it true that 
it seems like 70-year-olds are running the world to a, a great extent. Is that And running for president. And running for president. Um, and it, the you could have feelings about that both ways. So uh, what do you think the neuroscience would tell us about what it means to be 70 now as opposed to, say, what it meant to be 70 in the past or what it means to be 70 in other kinds of contexts? Well, so this is really the best time in history to be 70. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> I saw, by the way, a wonderful New Yorker cartoon that I liked that said, death is the new 80, which <laughs> I kind of... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you've heard people say 60 is the new 40, 80 is the new 60. The reality is that... We are living longer, but not just longer, we're living healthier. Yeah. Far healthier. And 70-year-olds are doing things that 50-year-olds used to do, and they're doing them well. Uh, uh, we've eradicated uh, through medical science and technology, you know, most of the things that killed us 100 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, and we have, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, healthier lifestyles. Um, not at all cases, but generally speaking. Um, and what's happening neurally is that, um, for one thing, there are a number of myths. For one thing, yeah. uh, the myth of declining memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people have failing memory as they go, get older. And indeed, it's a marker of Alzheimer's disease. But Alzheimer's is rarer than we think it is. Hmm. We've seen uh, an increased number of diagnoses of Alzheimer's <laughs> And the majority of those, according to many studies, are misdiagnoses. Hmm. They're misdiagnosed uh, based, uh, people who are having memory impairment based on lack of sleep, hmm. or it disrupted sleep, or based on polypharmacy, the mixture of a different, a uh, large number of medications that cause memory side effects. But uh, for the majority of adults, uh, they can experience no memory impairment through their 70s, 80s, and 90s at all coupled with increased empathy, compassion, tolerance, increased problem-solving abilities, particularly in the social domain. And to me, that's a recipe for somebody who's poised to actually be able to make uh, better decisions uh, on average than a younger counterpart. But I hasten to add that uh, the social psychological literature is rich, as is the business literature, uh, with examples of the most productive teams being right. those that are inclusive yeah. of gender, of race, country of national origin, background, uh, educational background, and, uh, and age. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. As a developmental psychologist, one of the things that I, I think is a very natural way of thinking about human development, I spend most of my time actually at the other end of the spectrum, studying uh, studying babies and young children. And there's a tendency, at, why would this be? There's a tendency to think that sort of a 40-year-old white male psychologist is like the peak of human achievement, right? And, and everybody else is just sort of either trying to get up to that level or else falling off from that level one way or another. Um, and of course, from an evolutionary perspective, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And instead of thinking about development as if it's this, you know, getting up to this peak and then having a decline, it makes much more sense to think that these different developmental periods are really serving different evolutionary and cognitive functions. So from the other 
end, one of the things that I've argued and others have argued is instead of thinking about children as being these kind of defective grown-ups who don't have the same kinds of abilities as um, as grown-ups, we should think about them as being like, you know, uh, a different phase of uh, a different phase of development with different kinds of strengths um, that are complementary to the strengths. Well, of I think adults. I think that, and I think the same argument could be made about, say, that post fifty, fifty to seventy, uh, uh, postmenopausal period. In fact, I think there's an argument to be made that we're actually really only human up till puberty and after menopause, or the equivalent for <laughs> for men. And in between, we're sort of like super baboons, like we're really completely these driven creatures that are out there desperately trying to maximize our resources and our utilities. And up till then, we're exploring and we're figuring out how the world works and we're learning and playing. And it sort of feels like after that, we're trying to encourage other people providing a kind of generosity to the next generation, that sense of urgent purpose about, you know, we need to mate and we need to reproduce and we need to get resources, that that calms down. I, I wonder what you think about the happiness literature, which is really interesting and sort of counterintuitive in terms of aging. Yeah, so uh, I, I do see uh, older age as just another developmental stage. Uh, it's it's not just decline, which is, has been the societal narrative. And with this conversation that we're having, and with this book and this radio broadcast, my overarching goal is that we can change the societal narrative, mm-hmm. society-wide, about what it means to be an older adult. It's not just a time of decline and debilitation and sadness. Uh, it's another developmental stage, like toddlerhood, infancy, toddlerhood, pre-adolescence, adolescence, young adulthood, middle age. It's another distinct phase with some advantages, some strengths, some challenges. Uh, and uh, we've seen a number of examples, just as you say, of people who kind of kick into high gear after menopause or andropause and and become their best selves and experience the peak of meaningfulness in their Mm. lives and relevancy. Um, And it turns out across 72 different countries, tens of thousands of people surveyed, what do you all suppose the peak age of happiness across a lifetime is? It's 82 so if you're not 82 yet, <laughs> and I'm looking around the room, I think that's all of you, you got quite a bit to look forward to. And if you are 82, I think that, you know, it's ageism that's making it that. We yeah. can push it out another 10 or 20 years. And in fact, the way the curve seems to go is that you're basically happy when you're a child and somewhere in your 20s or 30s, happiness sort of starts to decline. I think it's like 47 is the nadir. Yes. Um, I was thinking about when you and I were both in that age range, we both would, can, can relate to that. Um, but then the remarkable thing is around 50, the curve starts to go back up again and keeps going yeah. until the you know, until you get sick and getting sick sucks. But um, until you get to the getting sick part, um, you're, you're, you seem to be getting happier. It's true. And, and you know, that in compiling the research for the book, I found just so many stories of people that inspired me. Um, people who, to put it another way, have, have kind of rewritten 
the story of their life, their own biography at a later age. Hmm. Ha- have you heard of, uh, this, is my, this is my new hero. Yeah. Do you know about Julia Hurricane Hawkins? No. So she's a retired school teacher from Baton Rouge. She's a 103-year-old competitive runner <laughs> who just took gold uh, medals in the senior games, broke two world's records this year for running at 103. Hmm. She didn't begin competitive sports uh, until age 75 and didn't begin running until age 100. So, or uh, Carmen Herrera, a painter in New York City who uh, didn't sell her first painting until age 81 and then kept painting up a storm and was ignored for another eight years. She continues to paint at 104. In fact, I tried to interview her, and her people said, I'm sorry, she's too busy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she, her works now hang in the Whitney. It's, well, what do you think about, you know, there's a, there's a notion in art that thinking about a painter reminded me, and in literature, of a kind of late style. So if you think about... Beethoven's quartets, for example. I mean, that's an example of uh, that's an example of late style. Do you think there's connections between that and and the things that people usually think of as late style is a kind of depth and a kind of uh, profundity and even a kind of austerity that you don't see in in earlier work. Do you think that's connected with some of these changes in well, the brain? Cer- and- it was certainly true of Elliot Carter, the composer, right. who, uh, who said it took me 80 years to, to learn who Elliot Carter was. You mm-hmm. know, uh, the, um, what I find in the arts, and, and I know more about music than the other arts. That's right. So, you know, you've written your, that wonderful book about music. Um, how about music? I remember going to see Sonny Rollins when he was in his 80s, and he was spectacular. Um, I just talked to him recently. Uh-huh. I interviewed him for the book. Uh, wonderful. 89 years old, possibly the greatest living jazz musician on the planet. Uh, he played with everybody, you know, all the people who he's outlived. Right. Um, I, I've come to see that in art uh, and maybe in life, there are two kinds of people. Uh, there are people who keep pushing to try new things, who are curious about the world, open to having new experiences. And, you know, Miles Davis is an example uh, from music. He he was never content to just rest on his laurels. Now, a lot of people don't like the later work as much as the earlier work, but uh, that is the mark of an artist that he was mm-hmm. looking for something new. Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm. constantly trying to reinvent herself to the point that her record label sued her <laughs> for making records that weren't Joni Mitchell-like. Um, and Sonny uh, continued to push boundaries. He's got an ailment now that doesn't allow him to play, a lung disease. But he's he's loving uh, his immersion into the study of Zen Buddhism. Um, the, uh, Paul Simon who is, um, I think, the best example among uh, well-known musicians, he started making a series of albums in the year 2000, starting with a record called You're the One. And that series of records since then, in the last 20 years, I think were among the best records of his career, and each one got better and better. And... um, they were selling less and less, but that didn't bother him. Uh, we did an event together uh, like this, a conversation, and 
uh, he was just saying he's always just wanted to find out what new things he could try. That's a real artist. And he's very curious uh, and, and open. And I, I'm using these terms because they come from individual differences, psychology. Right. From uh, your colleague and mine, Oliver John and Lou right. Goldberg. And uh, it turns out that these two qualities, curiosity and openness, are neuroprotective. As you age, if you can maintain them, which can be hard to do because there are neural changes that make you want to just not try new things, neurochemical and neurostructural changes. But like, um, uh, like Dylan Thomas says, you know, rage. Do not go quietly into that good night. Rage against the, the uh, tendency, uh, the, the complacency of not doing anything and pushing back. Um, and, and the good news on this is that if you're not particularly curious or open, you can change. <laughs> you can change at any age. You're not too young to start. You're never too old to start. The entire field of psychotherapy is based on the idea that you can change your personality. Uh, as is meditation, Buddhism, um, yoga, uh, all of these. There's no one path that works for everybody. And interestingly, drugs. We find that giving what might be called a subclinical dose, a less than normal minimum dose, minimal dose of antidepressants, actually awakens the dopaminergic system. And dopamine is the neurochemical that makes you curious. It makes you want to explore. Teenagers probably have too much of it. Uh, the production of it declines as we get older, but you can boost it. So that, that's another question. I mean, given that it seems as if we have all these examples of people who, who, for whom age is, um, later life is, is a, in some ways, maybe the best period of their lives, what are, what are things that people could do or even more that we could do as a society that would that would make a difference. And I'll, I'll mention one. I was um, on the stage talking to Mark Friedman um, with the Commonwealth Club a little while ago. And he's talked about the fact that if we have this evolutionary function of taking care of young people, there's a very strange thing that we do in our society, which no society has ever done before, which is segregate out old people from children, for example. Um, and I think there's a lot of evidence that taking care of young children is actually, this gets back to how fantastic it is to be a grandmother, um, is something that is not just good for young children, but also good for older people themselves. What are some other things that we could do in institutionally, maybe as much as personally to to allow more people to experiencing experience aging in this very positive way from a young people when asked to describe older adults if they haven't spent much time with them in a free response they use words like um uh miserable <laughs> um uh curmudgeonly grumpy um ailing in pain um some use the word smelly. <laughs> uh, but after interacting with them in meaningful ways, such as an intergenerational choir mm. or a kind of trade program where, you know, Allison and I are both Canadian and Toronto has been at the forefront of uh, intergenerational housing units. Yeah. 
where dormitory college students are placed with older adults in a kind of adult community, but it's it's an adult and younger people community, and they interact. Uh, the, the the college kids might change the light bulbs for the older adults, yeah, uh, or help them uh, with their their phones, uh, and the older adults might tutor them in things that they had specialized in, or uh, just be companions, talk to them, book groups, things like that. Uh, again, I, I think the societal narrative needs to change, and it changes by us interacting with one another. Mm-hmm. It's the same way that we have been able to address the terrible societal bigotry against uh, people of particular races or gender identities. The more we interact with uh, people who are different from us, the more we realize they're not different from us. They're really the same. Yeah, and in some ways, particularly in this issue about age, there's this kind of complementarity. So there's a there's a lovely uh, study that I'd love by a, an anthropologist named Polly Wiesner, and she looked in some of these forager cultures, and she looked at what people talked about during the day, and then what happened at night when everyone sat around the fire. And again, this is part of my my feeling about that's when we're human. And what you discovered was during the day, it was the middle the middle aged people who were basically running the show and doing most of the talking and arranging work. And mostly, there was a, a category called CCC complaint criticism and conflict, mostly fetching about the fact that other people weren't working enough. But when the sun went down, um, it's nice that you can reduce the three C's to a K. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, but when the sun went down, suddenly things shifted, and now it was the older people and the children who were sort of the stars of the show. And the older people were, t- were telling stories. They were talking about what happened a long time ago. They were passing on the myths and songs of the um, of the culture, and the little kids were sitting around the fire and and eating it all up. Older adults and young kids have a very special relationship, uh, and not just in the family, but uh, I, I have to say what really shaped the, the book for me and the wanting to write it was these very intense uh, personal experiences that life just delivered to me. Mm-hmm. You know, in developmental science, we talk about the triad of genes, culture, and opportunity. Mm-hmm. as being the three things that influence the course of one's life. And opportunity is just the dumb things that happen, or you know, the random things, not always dumb. And um, uh, my very first encounter with an older adult, I grew up across in the East Bay in Moraga, when it was not a suburb, it was a, a f- farmland. It, it was mm-hmm. mostly cows grazing and uh, pear and walnut orchards. And it wasn't uh, incorporated, but there was an old Pony Express stop that was a post office. And the U.S. Postal Service required that there be a postmaster. (laughs) And they picked the person who had been in the town the longest, who was a (laughs) 75-year-old woman named Eleanor Dickinson, who was sort of like the town mayor or town grandparent. And I met her when I was six and used to go over to her house, and she would teach me about nature. She had salamanders in her backyard, and she taught me to identify the different kinds, and it, uh, she'd made make me um, hot cocoa and cookies, and it was a really warm and loving relationship. And when I was a student, uh, I had the great opportunity, um, it just happened that way, Irv Rock. Yeah, that's right. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Um, Maybe you could say a word about Irv Rock, uh, and then I'll talk about how that came about. Yeah, so Irv Rock was a wonderful, uh, profoundly brilliant psychologist who moved to Berkeley um, late in life and was a a kind of mentor both for uh, for Daniel and for me. A, A wonderful example of an incredibly brilliant and incredibly nice man, which doesn't always go together. Um, Big-hearted guy. Uh, one of the most profound thinkers in uh, what we would call the study of perception. And every time I go to Google or Apple uh, and the machine learning groups yeah. there, I see his book on the shelf. I mean, this is profound stuff. And, um, you know, we we just uh, developed a bond over uh, Reuben sandwiches and pickles <laughs> And uh, I was very lucky to have him and many, many other people, 40 or 50 years my senior throughout my life, as well as my grandparents, who I have to say, I'm lucky to, to say they doted on me in a way that most parents don't because they're in the middle of their careers and doing things. And you had this this wonderful um, aspect of uh, opportunity in your own household. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd share how you think. That played out because you you come from a very famous Montreal family. Well, we we are we come from I come from a big noisy Montreal family is the way I is the way I would put it. But it you is, can say that it, I can't. It, it, it is very interesting now to see. So we well I come from a family of six, and of the six, three of us, uh, three of the sisters, just became grandparents in the past two or three years. So it's kind of an amazing thing to suddenly have all of us be in this new role. And and we're all basically very happy about how sweet and nice and bright the other grandchildren are. I mean, they're not quite exactly like ours, but but they're very nice and we like we well, like spending time with them. You have uh, Augie. Yes. I mean, that's a special um, in fact, I, I was I was rushing to get here because I was taking Augie to to uh, well, I was taking Augie to math class. But um, but it turns out that this one of the things that's so fascinating about that role is that you know being a mother, for example, there's all this kind of hormonal preparation and there's all this kind of background. And I mean, after all, it is your it is your baby and. You know, even being a father, there's this kind of really enormous change. And the striking thing about being older is that you can, and this sounds sentimental, but I think it's true, is that there's a kind of love that you can feel for a child that has a real depth very, very quickly um, and a real kind of generosity to it that's that's really different from the the kinds of emotions that you have. Well, I think that's the compassion and the empathy. And so, you know, an interesting thing is, uh, the Dalai Lama had sent over some of his monks to various centers to have their brains scanned. And we found certain uh, differences in uh, functional scans of the brain for people who had been meditating for 20 years, particularly on compassion and gratitude meditation, which are the two uh, focused meditations that the Dalai Lama recommends. And uh, we see those, the activation in those same regions in grandparents, 
mm-hmm. who, whether they ever meditated or not, they kind of naturally slip into this uh, feeling of gratitude and, and compassion and acceptance. A, yeah. a parent might accept a child's behavior uh, less than a grandparent would accept it because the parent's trying to mold the child. The grandparent is less so trying to mold the child, I think, than to inspire the child mm-hmm. and to uh, give a context for cultural and family history and values education. Uh, in my family, anyway, the values always came down from the grandparents more than the parents. And, you know, we talk a lot about uh, what kind of world are the boomers yeah. leaving to our children. I think an equally important conversation for us older adults to have for we older adults to have, is uh, what kind of children are we leaving the world? Let's take some questions from the audience. I like this. Um, this is this is combining both of your areas of expertise. Which genre of music would you recommend for 70-year-olds, classical or hip-hop? <laughs> In the context of making you smarter and more open and more compassionate and empathetic. <laughs> You're trying to get me into trouble. Whoever asked that, um, I, I think that the um, the big thing is if you've been a music listener all along, um, try doing something different. Yeah. Immerse yourself in dance, or in visual art, or um, in uh, you know in literature, some other art form that you haven't devoted as much time to, because that's the kind of um, uh, that the newness of the experience creates entirely new neural connections, pathways that are expanding your repertoire of the kinds of things that you engage with, and that's neurally protective. Uh, and yeah, I, you know, look, I think I think it's probably helpful to listen to hip hop um, in that. Um, it's been around for 40 years now. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's it's here to stay, and <laughs> it is what has resonance for young kids. And, um, you know, it's funny. My parents could not stand that noise I listened to <laughs> in my bedroom all those years. To them, the Who and Hendrix and Cream and Blood, Sweat and Tears and the Beatles and the Carpenters all sounded alike. <laughs> And now in their 80s, they've been buying up Carpenters and Beatles and Who records, and they finally come around. Um, I mean, again, to get back to some of these societal uh, questions, one of the um, one of the other questions is, you know, what what would you say about the idea that there's this kind of graying of America that's going on? So there really are these demographic shifts such that, well, in America and in Europe and throughout the world, Japan and Japan is a Japan may be a kind of leading edge example of this. There's uh, societies with more and more older people. Are there things that we can do that we should do that we should think about in terms of you know what a, what would a politician what would what would be a policy position that you could have about this? Well, uh, so uh, uh, just to share some statistics, this is the first year in history when there are more Americans over sixty five than under five, hmm. and within ten years there'll be more Americans over sixty five than under eighteen. Wow. Hmm. So you may have heard the expression that children are our future; they're not. Old people hmm. are. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of them. 
And um, the thing that I found over and over again in, uh, from talking to people and from reading the literature is that if, you know, if I have one piece of advice, it's don't retire. Hmm. And if you do retire, maybe because you're in a job that's stressful or dangerous or you get forced out like my grandfather, um, retire to something else. Yeah. Volunteer work, work in a hospital, work uh, in an old age home uh, for people who might be your age but aren't mobile. Uh, um, any kind of philanthropic activity or tutoring. Um, you know, the, the societal issue is, you know, we, we talk a lot about the stress on the Social Security system. If you don't retire, you're still contributing to it. Mm-hmm. You're... Uh, paying income tax rather than drawing from the economy. And there's no medical or neurological reason why people can't be working uh, in their their 80s and 90s. And universities are a really great example of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw Dan Slobin the other day. How old is Dan? He's in his 80s anyway, yeah. He's as sharp as he was 40 years ago. Uh, My own teacher, uh, Roger Shepard, is now 91. I talked to him on the phone now and then. He's working on two different books, one about physics, which is not his area. He's a psychologist. Uh, Another about uh, the free will problem. Uh, Basically, uh, do we have free will or not? Um, And um, Mike Posner is in his, I think Mike Posner, another one of my mentors, 86, 87. He's still collaborating with Mary Rothbart, who unfortunately, developmental psychologist, about the same age, unfortunately... She's been bedridden for two or three years uh, with a physical ailment, but she's still working. So, so that, that raises another question. I mean, we've been being very optimistic about the fact that um, the fact that we have this potential to continue to be both physically and mentally active. But it is, you know, it is also true that that death is the new age. It is also true that that um, our, we're going to have to be. Op- people as they get older are going to have to be facing these kinds of challenges of mobility and of health and eventually facing the end. I was, I was going to say, I do think one of the things that happens is that as that it's this curious and kind of moving thing, which is as you know that there's less time ahead, the time that you have seems to take on extra value. I think that's part of the difference between the grandmother, grandparents' experience of the grandchildren, which has this kind of funny, almost meditative quality. You know, it's being very present in the moment with those children as opposed to thinking every minute about what's going to happen in the future. And I think having a sense of uh, that there's not infinite time left has has some of those effects. But But what should we do about all the other things, the things that are real and that we shouldn't be... Uh, closing our eyes about about the negative sides of getting older. I mean, well, uh, um, right. I, I mean, the, you can't keep working if you're not able to work. Uh, I think part of the part of what we can do is start having frank conversations with our loved ones, our children, our partners, uh, our doctors about what we want our time to look like. There are a number of choices that can be made, uh, trade-offs. Do you want to live longer or do you want to live healthier? Mm-hmm. So in the book, I make the distinction between your... Uh, you talk about the lifespan from when you're born to when you die. As, as be, you can distinguish it as having a, a health span 
and a disease span. As Allison said, you know, mm-hmm. uh, most of us, we go sailing along, we're healthy, 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 we get sick, we die. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, m- most of the research on um, uh, longevity is looked at making your life longer without looking at all about what that last part is going to be like. It's just extending the years, extending the clock. I argue in the book that we should be extending the health span. Mm-hmm. And sure, if you get a greater lifespan out of it, that's great. But what would be the point in living to 200 years if you spend the last 110 unaware of your surroundings and, and stricken with Alzheimer's? So um, what we can do is start having conversations about these trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some older adults who um, have decided they would rather stay mentally active longer, and there are certain cognitive-enhancing uh, drugs you can take. I'm not talking about anything crazy. I'm not talking about illegal drugs, but uh, they might slightly increase the risk of heart disease. So the question is, you know, uh, where do you want to draw the line? And then... Um, I think we can, I, I just took my uncle uh, to see uh, an assisted living facility. Actually, it's a it's a, a senior living community with an assisted living component mm. up in Napa. Uh, he's not ready, mm. but um, he had read the book and he decided it would be a good idea to get used to the idea <laughs> and just to see what it was like. And I got to tell you, we had so much fun there. We were both ready to sign on the dotted line. <laughs> Um, the, the, so I think, you know, part of it is to, um, do what Danny Kahneman calls the pre-mortem. Yeah. Think about what could go wrong or think about what your life might yeah. be like and, and start exploring it in your mind and in conversations so that when the time comes, uh, you, you know, it doesn't come as a shock. Fill out an advanced medical directive. There's also an advanced dementia directive, which I have in the book, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that's important is to think not in terms of when you're, you know, there's a, an interest in life extension. And I had a conversation with a young man at, at Google when I was there once, and he was saying he thought all of the people in the Valley really wanted to have these new ways of making your, your life longer, um, getting rid of mortality. And I said to him, well, you know, like you have, children and you have relationships and you have spouses and, you know, even as you see yourself not existing, you have a sense of yourself going on in your children and the people that you love. And he said... Students. Uh, students, exactly. And he said, would that be kind of like having to get a girlfriend? And I said, yeah, I think that would be like a good first step. And and he said he thought just figuring out how to be immortal was probably easier. It wasn't as, wasn't as difficult and would be a better... Uh, uh, getting some technological fixes for death would be a better, easier route than having to get a girlfriend. Um, Fascinating. <laughs> totally illogical. <laughs> um, one of the other questions here that I think also speaks to this is what is it about, say, classical and jazz musicians? This gets back to your point about retiring um, that seems to enable so many musicians to keep functioning into a, a, a really, um, really late into age. It's, it's funny. I was just watching the Ken Burns country music uh, series, and it seems like great musicians either sort of die when they're 25 or live until they're 90 making making great music. Well, um, one of the things is that uh, playing music, whether you write it or not, just playing music uh, uses every part of the brain we've so far mapped. Hmm. 
it's one of the most complex human activities there is. Uh, in many respects, more complex than being a rocket scientist or a, uh, well, a brain surgeon. I, I worked in a medical school at McGill, and I can tell you, brain surgery is not that complicated. It's mostly plumbing. <laughs> you know, stop a leak here, you know, drain some fluid there. Um, but um, <laughs> I think part of it is that it's so engaging for the brain, and part of it is the culture of musicians is that musicians uh, often, typically, are encountering new people all the time hmm. and playing with new people. And um, think about it. The, the very thing that makes new people exciting also makes them annoying. Mm -hmm. They may disagree with you. They may not negotiate or compromise with you. Uh, I mean, all of us who have ever worked in a, 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 a workplace, I'm sure you've had coworkers that you just did not like. Uh, one of the reasons I say don't retire is that um, when you retire, you don't have to deal with people you don't like. <laughs> and dealing with people you don't like is healthy for the brain. It requires a lot of accommodation, as does playing music. You've got to pay attention to what the other person is doing. You can't make music effectively if you're not. You've got to know when your part's going to fit in. You've got to be keeping a sense of timing. Uh, music is a conversation. So it's interesting, you know, um, Laura Carstensen, uh, who you know, has talked all about there's a sort of tension, though, right? Because on the one hand, um, it's important for older people to be engaged. But on the other hand, there is a sense in which there's a kind of pruning that goes on as, as people get older, where the people who they're close to become more and more important to them, and they spend more time with them. And, and there's a kind of sense of priorities about what what really counts and and um, how do you think those two things get balanced? That well, so Laura calls this socio-emotional selectivity theory. Right. And it was based on some really groundbreaking work that she did during the AIDS crisis here in San Francisco, which is she noticed that people who were given a death sentence, you're going to live only six or months or a year, reshifted the way they wanted to spend their time to look effectively more like 80 and 85-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And what she found is that um, the way you want to spend your time is in large degree, uh, and it's been replicated many, many times uh, the world over, it's to a large degree influenced by how much time you have left. Hmm. And so there's this tendency as we get older, you know, uh, one sort of broad way of, of uh, painting the the entire lifespan is that, you know, in the early years, you're just acquiring the tools you need, language, manners, potty training. Uh, and then you acquire knowledge in school and in intermediate and high school, social knowledge, hopefully. Uh, and then you develop skills, you get a job, you try to acquire resources, as you were saying, so that you can have resources for your family, potentially for your retirement. Uh, and in your 20s, you're, you're looking for new experiences, uh, trying to figure out who you are. What kind of person do I want to spend time with? What kind of job do I want to spend time on? By the time you hit 50 or 60, you, you figured that out. You're less inclined to want to try new things. You want to go to the restaurant that you know will give you a good meal. Right. Uh, not to some newfangled restaurant with yak ears, <laughs> and, you know, parbroiled in beef lungs. You know, you, you, you want to have this um, this safety net. And, um, and by the same token, you want to go to that restaurant with people that you know make you feel good about yourself and that you have a, a commitment to. Um, but to some extent, 
we need to push back against that. Uh-huh. Um, I recommend the next time you're in line at the at the grocery store. The yak ears? Go for the yak ears? Is that what you're suggesting, Dan? <laughs> no. <laughs> but speaking of ears, try to get the ear of the person in the line next to you. Mm-hmm. Just start up a conversation. There's a lot of research that shows that people who are riding the subway or the bus uh, or standing in line, really, if asked, they'll say, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. But if forced to, they actually like it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, I find that I have a, a better sense of community and belonging in the world when I talk to strangers on the street. Mm-hmm. I even, I had this extraordinary experience two weeks ago. Um, I was in New York City, and I was waiting for the F train with my friend Peter Himmelman, who has been studying Jewish mysticism. And the the thing he's been studying for many years now is um, to love your fellow human, which is sometimes hard to do. And we're, it's 10 o'clock at night. There's an F train uh, that we're waiting for, and this homeless person comes up to us. And in the spectrum of homelessness people, some are more uncomfortable to be around than others, right? Uh, and this person was on the far end of uncomfortable. <laughs> He was, uh, he, had, he, had, he had peed his pants. Mm. He was uh, in clothing that had not, you know, dirt and blood caked on it. And um, he had uh, a bead of fresh mucus mm. stuck in his mustache halfway up his nose still. And he walked towards us. And I think, I don't care how compassionate you are. I think most people at that point would kind of turn away. But not Peter. Peter leaned in towards him. The guy came up and started talking. We couldn't hear him. But Peter looked at him intently and with acceptance and compassion in Peter's face. And the guy kept talking. And Peter said at one point, Sir, I can't hear your words, but I feel them. And the guy just suddenly, everything about him changed. Peter asked him his name. His name was Dyrell. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we were just coming from a gig, uh, so we, Peter took out my guitar, and he said, Dyrell, I'd like to play a song for you. <laughs> and Peter improvised this amazing song with really exotic chord changes and rhymes. Uh, it started out rather simple. We're here waiting for the F train. I met a man named Dyrell. Uh, I can see from his face that things are not going well. <laughs> uh, and... He kept using Dyrell's name in the song and making it about the moment there. Dyrell looked like a six-year-old. He was so happy. He looked like a kid in kindergarten who was being praised by the teacher because that's what you do for every child in turn in kindergarten, right? You let them be the center of attention. It was amazing. And then Peter started to sing, and I can see, he moved into a, a chorus. He says, I can see that you are a man. Dyrell is a man, a man with dignity, though not everyone sees it. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I just, I, I lost it. I, I was so moved. And uh, Dyrell was transformed. He walked away with this bounce in his step. Uh, and uh, for a moment, at least, I don't know how long it lasted, he was not just what we ignore. He was a man. He was a human. And um, 
Ever since then, I've been trying to talk to homeless people as I go through the city and not be afraid of them. And um, some of them are are not sensical, uh, but they still want to be heard. And um, I don't know how to solve the homelessness problem, but I know that by opening my heart to this thing that I've tried to shut out for so long, I feel more human. Mm. So I think, you know, that raises an interesting question again. I mean, we've been emphasizing successful aging, but... I guess one question is how do you how do you let go of some things and let other things um, and and emphasize the things that actually really count? So you know, giving things to the next generation, for example, being able to to step back. It, as you know, you know the academic um, world that we both come from is one where you have wonderful examples. My my old mentor um, Jerome Bruner lived to be a hundred and was incredibly active and involved and engaged all the way through. But we also you know, know Brenda Miller just turned a hundred. Yeah. So there's Not maybe a great, being no, yeah. a neuroscientist is a good, a good, uh, <laughs> a good strategy for, for an old age. But we also know about people where we feel like they hung on too long. They hung on after, um, after they could have been more gracefully making room for, uh, for younger people and younger ideas. Well, this is delicate. So uh, what Posner and Shepard did, my two mentors, is they retired. Uh, I actually retired from McGill. Yeah. Uh, I'm not... I, I retired because... Uh, not because I didn't want to contribute anymore, but because by doing so, the department could hire a 30-year-old. Yeah. And I, I didn't lose any of my rights and privileges uh, as a McGill professor by retiring. Uh, I mean... I'm emeritus, uh, so I still have a lab there, and I still have grants, and I still supervise students. But a younger person has come in. Uh, that p- person who came in, I mentored and, and gave them some guidance, and I still serve on doctoral committees. And uh, so I think it's it's a modifying of the role. It's it's I, I didn't quite get out of the way. Nobody asked me to. I think they would if they thought I was clogging the works. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that generations do is they is they enable societal change. So, you know, we know that what happens with each generation is that the kinds of values that people have or the things that seemed completely like just part of life for us uh, women, for example, 20 years ago that look as if they're intolerable now or vice versa, things that seemed completely unimaginable then that seem commonplace now. Um and I think it's quite an interesting question with generations. This is we were talking a little before about, you know, the whole hey boomer uh, phenomenon, our our relationship to all those damn avocado eat, toast eating millennials. Um, Have you had avocado toast? I love avocado toast, I will admit, and I feed it to my grandchildren. Uh, uh, but I mean, I think there is there are these interesting questions in some sense that older generation becomes the repository of the cultural wisdom, like the, you know, orca, those postmenopausal orca grandmothers going out and finding the, finding the salmon. But, um, and we wouldn't want to be giving that up for the sake of the new generation. And yet there's this productive tension between the fact that we have a certain kind of tradition and a certain kind of knowledge, and then the fact that we know that we're passing that information on. Um, you can see this in um, technological change, for example, which is something that I've thought about quite a lot. Um, there's a lot of anxiety about 
what's happening with technological change. And almost always what happens is, you know, basically the day before you're born is Eden and the day after your children are born is Mad Max. Um, we sort of assume that things are, things are going to get worse and the next generation isn't going to be as good as the previous generation. I did a column about this recently in the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. They, this is something that a bunch of psychologists called the uh, kids these days effect. Um, so I think it's an interesting challenge. Like, how could we avoid the kids these days effect? Or should we avoid well, it? Maybe I, we just embrace the kids these days effect. Well, at, at, I, I think, I think we'd, again, it's a societal conversation. We have to, we have to, as older adults, we have to talk about it among ourselves, but also with younger adults. We have to find a, a way to work together. Uh, look, look the, the biggest problems that we're facing in the world, uh, however you want to list them, but I mean, they'd include things like an unequal distribution of resources, you know, large proportion of the world not having clean water, uh, um, terrible aggressions within countries and across countries, climate change. If, if these problems were easy to solve, they would have been solved already. Hmm. I don't think we boomers are going to solve them, but I don't think the millennials are, are going to solve them either. I think we need to work together. And um, it's, it is hard to figure out what these partnerships will look like. But as one example that has another local angle just up the street here, uh, as you know, Stephen Coslin and I mm -hmm. left our university positions. Right. Yeah, that's, an, that's a good example. I, I left McGill, Stephen left Stanford, he'd been at Harvard before, and we joined with somebody almost half our age, Ben Nelson, an entrepreneur, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, uh, and um, we started a new university that was based on the newest technology. We created a technological platform that uses the science of learning, 40 years of the science of learning from cognitive psychology that rarely gets put into the classroom, uh, and it was only possible because Ben uh, Ben knew that he needed from Stephen and I and, uh, and, and now Vicki Chandler and um, other uh, older adults who were working on the project, uh, including um, Diane Halpern. He knew that he needed our collected, you know, we, together we had like 200 years of experience in college <laughs> ed, right? He knew, Ben knew he needed that, but he also hired the top engineers and computer scientists uh, from Silicon Valley to implement this cross-generational view of what uh, education can look like. And we now have students from over 60 countries. Most of them are on financial aid because we're need-blind in our admissions. Um, and by all accounts, we are providing a better education than any other institution uh, I mean, by actual metrics. Yeah, I mean, universities are among the oldest institutions in the world, right? And uh, they're slow to change. And they're very slow to change. So there's an example. And it seems like there's a sort of picture Minerva. about... There's a picture about having different developmental periods interacting both for individual people and in general. But if, I mean, if there were three things that um, you were going to recommend to people, what are the things they should be thinking about as they're going into this going into this period of age? Well, um, I have two sets of three things, really. Okay. One is, um, if things are going well, the things to think about, and then if things aren't going well, the things to think about. Right. So things are going well for you. The first one, I'll just reiterate, don't retire, or if you retire from something, make sure you have something to retire to, and sitting in a corner stamp collecting is probably not it. <laughs> um, 
work on your conscientiousness if you're not a conscientious person. That is the biggest single statistical factor hmm. that uh, predicts longevity. Conscientious people don't get run over by a bus cause, as often because they don't cross against the light. They don't end up in prison because they follow rules. They go see the doctor when something's wrong. They actually have a doctor to see. Uh, uh, and you know, like anything else, you can change your personality if you want to. Uh, so increasing conscientiousness. And then finally, um, I'd say, uh, if, if you're doing well, uh, get in the habit of um, trying to be more open and curious. Mm. Now, if you're not doing well and you're thinking about moving into a retirement community or something or you know whatever change of of living i know a lot of older adults uh, talk about wanting to leave the city and get out to the hmm. the country where it's quiet and beautiful but there are some very practical questions that you should ask yourself one of them is uh, and and these are sort of whimsical stand-ins for the real issue <laughs> one of them is who will change my light bulbs? <laughs> if you're living 40 miles out in the country and you're 80 years old, uh, do you really want to be climbing a ladder to get to those recessed bulbs or, you know, calling somebody in who's going to take, you know, 40 minutes or an hour to get to your place? Who's going to change my light bulb? Who's going to help me out with, with things that I need help with? Carry my groceries, whatever it is. Um, the second one is, um, what do I do if I want to get an ice cream cone? <laughs> which is a proxy for wherever you're living, can you be spontaneous? Can hmm. you just get up and walk somewhere and do something fun without having to rely on a car if you might get to the point where you can't drive or having to depend on an Uber and all of that or Lyft or other rideshare program? I do not endorse any particular rideshare program. Uh, and, um, and third, uh, who am I going to have lunch with? How are you going to spend your time with other people? Maybe you'll start a reading group or a you know, book club or a bridge club or just go out to lunch. But you have to make an effort to get out of the house and, and mix with people, particularly young people hmm. when you're older. So hang out with your grandchildren. That yes. sounds like that's yeah. a good... Or in my or, case... Or, uh, or other people's grandchildren. Right, exactly, in my case. Uh, well, we're just about out of time, so... Let me give a huge thank you to Daniel Levitin, the author of yet another bestseller, Successful Aging. I'm Alison Gopnik, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. And I get to take the gavel.